Hello, and welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. So much of our happiness and well-being comes back to how effectively we're able to communicate with others, particularly inside of our important relationships. We spend so much of our lives talking to each other, but how often are we simply running on automatic and falling into habits that have gotten us into trouble in the past, rather than truly being our best selves? Are we able to hear others and speak our mind in a clear and kind way, without either becoming defensive or being excessively punishing and prosecutorial. To help us learn how to do just that, today we have the pleasure of being joined by the author of Say What You Mean, a mindful approach to nonviolent communication, Orrin J. Sofer. Orrin brings a unique and pragmatic perspective to living and speaking mindfully. His teaching combines decades of formal training in Buddhist meditation, somatics, and nonviolent communication with everyday experience working in the world. He focuses on offering approaches to improving relationships by transforming our patterns of speaking and listening. So Oren, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. I think this can be a fun conversation. To give a little bit of context, your book, Say What You Mean, offers some simple and powerful practices that bring together nonviolent communication with your experience in mindfulness. And Probably most of the people interacting with this podcast to this point have a pretty reasonable grounding in mindfulness, at least at a kind of practical day-to-day level, mm-hmm. but they may not be so familiar with nonviolent communication. So I was wondering if you could start by describing nonviolent communication or NVC and letting us know where your interest in it came from. Yeah, sure. So nonviolent communication was founded by a man named Dr. Marshall Rosenberg. Mm. Marshall grew up in Detroit in the early 40s, and he lived through the race riots there, the first wave of race riots in the 40s. And at that time, there were several dozen people who lost their lives just within a few blocks of his home. And he couldn't leave his, his house during that time, and it left a really deep impression on him. He talked about it later in life, saying that it was, it was a powerful education that we live in a world where people might want to hurt you because of the color of your skin. And then later, as he grew, he was beat up a lot and ostracized for being Jewish. So this too, he said, was a powerful education that people might want to do violence to you because of your last name. And so these early experiences left him with a really powerful question of why do some people, when their needs aren't met, resort to violence? Mm. while other people are able to stay connected to the sense of common humanity or to compassion. And so it was out of these questions that he went on to study psychology. He did research with Carl Rogers, one of the founders of humanistic psychology, and later developed this system of communication called nonviolent communication. And I want to say two or three things about about what NVC is and, and why he named it nonviolent communication. At the broadest level, it's really not a communication technique. It's an, it's an awareness practice and a, and a practice of transforming our consciousness. It's, it's really about giving us tools to integrate the principles of nonviolence into our lives at many different levels. And he called it nonviolent communication for two reasons. One, because what he discovered was that the ways in which we think and speak play a large role in whether or not we will see violence as a viable strategy mm. to meet our needs when, when things aren't going the way we want them to. The other reason was very consciously and intentionally to place it within the tradition of Kingian and Gandhian nonviolence because he saw our words, our communication as kind of a, a key fulcrum for social change. 
And that if we're not paying attention to how we speak to one another and even how we, how we think, that we run the risk of recreating the very systems that we're trying to transform in society. So that's, that's kind of a, a broad level view of where nonviolent communication comes from and some of its larger intentions and visions. Mm-hmm. No, that's great. And I think that it's interesting where you said you made reference to nonviolent communication more as a mode of thinking and being than as a codified communicative system. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, certainly from my own level of understanding, I think of nonviolent communication in terms of a relatively specific communicating format that's kind of emerged from it, which is this structure of when something happens, I feel something because I need something with the person kind of filling in the blanks for those various things. So I don't know, it might be something like when I see a lot of undone dishes, I feel overwhelmed because I need more help around the house. And it's kind of a very structured way of specifying your needs with somebody else. What I hear you implying here is that that system is not really necessarily the core value add of nonviolent communication. I was wondering if you could expand on that for a second. Sure, yeah. What what you're speaking to is one of the most common, we could say misunderstandings, but but even more so like limitations mm. of the, the power and the potential of nonviolent communication. Yeah, the, the core training is this template, this structure that you're referring to of being able to make clear observations, be in touch with our emotions, the deeper needs uh, that those feelings are connected to. And then the last component of making requests or offering mm-hmm. suggestions or ideas for how to move forward. But really, this is just a training technique. Mm. This is not a formula for how to speak. It's a way of transforming our perceptions and our consciousness to be more aware of particular aspects of human experience that make it easier to understand one another, that help us to actually identify, okay, what's important to me? What's actually happening And then how do I communicate this in a way that the other person is going to be able to understand? So one of the things that I focus a lot on in in my own work and in the book is really looking at the internal foundations of communication, mindfulness being the first and Mm -hmm. most essential. If we're not aware, we're on automatic. So we need that sense of present moment awareness to connect with somebody else. But the other factor that's really important is our intention. Mm. Where are we coming from? And so this is where the form of nonviolent communication often gets misused. If somebody picks up that template, but they don't actually do the internal work to transform the perceptions of blame or the beliefs of I'm right and you're wrong and you should have done it this way. And so then we, we lay on top of those intentions and assumptions, mm-hmm. this kind of polished verbal form. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and then expect other people to do what we want. <laughs> yeah, I think that's really interesting, Warren, because you're you're really speaking very directly here to, to be perfectly honest, kind of my response when I first encountered NVC, which is this fundamental question of, of that format is a perfectly lovely format for when you really have to be very careful when communicating to somebody. But I think that many people would interact with it and go, wow, this sounds extremely formulaic. And what's the improvement of something like that structure over a more casual communication of, hey, you know, I could really use some more help doing the dishes or whatever Mm -hmm. the structure might be. And it, it starts to kind of feel maybe a little bit artificial. So you're sort of pointing to the importance being more on that underlying set of values or kind of what we bring into a conversation from ourselves rather than the explicit structure itself. Yeah, absolutely. And and then what the structure does is 
it helps illuminate the assumptions, the the beliefs, the the judgment, the blame that we might be carrying, mm-hmm. and to start to actually take that apart and transform it into more useful pieces of information, mm-hmm. right? So you refer to kind of the classic housemate situation, sure, right? Yeah. Around the, mm-hmm. the dishes in the kitchen. So it's like, if I'm living in the perception of you're such a slob and you never clean up after yourself and I have to do everything, if those are the kinds of thoughts running through my head, it's going to be very difficult to actually have a productive conversation with you. So we can use that template, that form of nonviolent communication to investigate, to actually look more closely and say, okay, well, what's actually going on for me? What am I responding to in my environment? Well, there were dirty dishes in the sink for a couple of days. And why is that important to me? What do, I, what do I need? And you said, you know, oh, I want more help around the house. I want more collaboration and teamwork. And then coming from that place where I'm aware of what's actually important to me is um, much easier to hear for somebody else and also much more inviting than that narrative of blame and should and judgment. Warren, for yourself, when you began engaging these forms increasingly, what kind of specific transformations of your own consciousness stood out for you maybe when you look back over the last five, 10 or more years? Yeah, thanks, Rick. It's, it's pointing to the other part of the question Forrest asked at the beginning, which is why, why and how did I kind of start picking this up? So um, about five or six years into my meditation practice, I was living and working at the Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts. I was working as a cook. And what I noticed was that the, the clarity and the kindness and the patience of my meditation practice would miraculously vanish <laughs> as soon as I got into any kind of disagreement or argument with a coworker in the kitchen mm-hmm. about something as inconsequential as how long to steam the broccoli or how to cut the carrots or something. So I realized that there was a gap, right? That what I was practicing on the cushion wasn't translating into my relationships. And, and it was about that time that I, I met Dr. Rosenberg and came across his work so the, the changes that I've seen over the last 15 or 20 years of practicing nonviolent communication and integrating it into my contemplative practice are vast, you know. So for one, there's a much stronger capacity to stay present and aware in conversation with other people, even when things get heated or, or, or difficult. So I don't go into automatic as quickly or easily. Another really tangible benefit and transformation has been if someone is blaming me, if someone is coming towards me with reactivity or judgment, I don't take it personally. Uh, It's very rarely, it's very easy for me because of the training that I've done. And this is one of the the great gifts of nonviolent communication of the form is I'm able to hear what they're saying as being about their own feelings and unmet needs. Mm. And that's not to say that I don't take responsibility for my actions or the impact I've had on others, but I don't need to defend myself against their narrative of blame. I'm wrong. I'm bad. I shouldn't have done that. I can actually just hear, wow. This is something that's important to you. Like, I really get that. It's really ironic that, in effect, you're saying by focusing so fundamentally and with a virtuous intent on your own responsibility, 
I'm thinking it's going to date me back to day one of the S training I took in 1975, in which my trainer was thundering, you are responsible for your own experience. In other words, we're not necessarily responsible for the thunderstorm that happens on our Sunday picnic, but we Mm -hmm. are responsible for the experience we construct of that, which obviously is very consistent as well with mindfulness teachings and Buddhist teachings. So it's very interesting that you're saying that this focus on taking responsibility oneself for one's own reactions when certain things happen and one's own deep needs, taking Mm -hmm. responsibility for that yourself in a funny kind of way can liberate us in a sort of radical differentiation in which we recognize that the person over there is also responsible for their own experience, their own expression, their own reactions to things. I find that really ironic and interesting. Absolutely, absolutely. And it's, it, it is, they use the word liberating and that's been my experience. It's really liberating. And it, it rests upon this core premise that's uh, at the heart not only of nonviolent communication, but as, as you well know, of humanistic psychology, that we can view human behavior, all human actions and behavior as an attempt to meet deeper fundamental shared mm-hmm. needs. Mm-hmm. And that is the liberating part, is that when we, when we view things from this perspective, we see that our own and other people's emotions, our responses to the conditions and situations of our lives are most closely related to our own mm-hmm. needs and values. They're a reflection of what matters to us. And that helps us to disentangle mm-hmm. from one another and creates the space in a conversation and a relationship to both fully honor each individual's subjective experience mm-hmm. while still being accountable and taking responsibility for the ways we impact each other. Yeah, that makes total sense to me. And I, I have a question kind of practically about that because it's sort of one thing to know that somebody's outburst at you is a result of their own unmet need for something or their own desire for something from you. And it's great to have that level of interoception where we can kind of sense into our own experience and really be aware of the ways in which the things that arise within us don't need to invade the mind and remain to steal the language of the Buddha. But kind of practically in conversation, it can be a struggle to do this when we feel that we're operating kind of from the high ground and being very polite and very understanding and very nonviolent. But the other people inside of that conversation are not meeting us there and Mm -hmm. are coming at us with a lot of topspin and a lot of judgment and things like that. And Mm -hmm. it's certainly one thing to kind of say, well, maybe take a step back from those people or maybe try to relate to them as well you can nonviolently, but there are important people in our lives that, you know, are challenging to disentangle from important relationships, parents, spouses, whatever it might be. So my question here is really when we're operating from a place of nonviolent communication, what is the value of that inside of a conversation when our conversational partner is not doing the same thing? And maybe to put it another way, how can we encourage people to relate to us more mindfully? Mm. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Forrest. I'm just going to take a moment because it's, it's an important question. There's a lot tied into what you're saying. Mm. And I think the place that I want to start is with our own deepest values and intentions for how we want to live. Mm. Mm-hmm. Marshall Rosenberg, one of the things that he said once, which I really appreciate, was he said, I never need to worry about what other people 
say or do. I only need to worry about how I respond. Mm. There's a kind of equanimity built into that, which is that this recognition that we don't control other people, that we can't control other people. The only thing that we actually have choice and control over is the ways that we relate to what's happening in the moment. And, you know, you mentioned the, the sense of, of almost pride. You didn't use that word, but that, mm. can, that can come when we're like, hey, like I'm really doing my best. I'm trying to be kind and patient and generous here. Can you meet me halfway? Yeah. That's all good and well. And, you know, sometimes just even saying something like that can, can invite that space. But ultimately, at the end of the day, for myself, you know, I have to ask myself, did I live with integrity? Mm. And regardless of how other people are treating me or responding to me, did I treat them in a way that I feel good about? And so for me, that releases me from this kind of this myth that life should be fair or that if I listen to you, then I expect you to listen to me, right? Sometimes that's not the way things go, but I have a deep commitment to non-harming, to living in a way that doesn't cause harm, to treating everyone with kindness and respect as much as possible, regardless of how they're treating me. And that doesn't mean being a doormat, not standing up for myself, but it means being careful and, and having a lot of choice in how I relate and respond. So I think this is, this is the, the most broad kind of overarching frame for mm. me for, for that question. Mm-hmm. In terms of the, the practicalities of, well, yeah, but then also how do you actually invite people to meet you there? Yeah. This is the training and this is really a lot of what I teach, which is things like really being present ourselves. So if we want others to communicate more mindfully or be more present with us, the first step is for us to model it, right? To actually give someone our undivided attention, to look them in the eyes, to not be distracted that sends a message to them explicitly and implicitly to their nervous system that I'm really here. And it, it invites them both in, the, in their conscious mind, but also in their body mm. to actually show up and slow down and arrive. And when we're really grounded and fully present, it creates the possibility for the other person's nervous system to begin to settle and relax and arrive in the moment. Similarly, our intentions, when we are genuine in wanting to understand, work together, and collaborate, that invites the other person to set aside their defensiveness and reactivity because there's nothing that they're pushing against. Mm. We're not giving them any resistance, so there's no need to actually continue that level of activation. That's, a, that's often a self-protective mechanism. If there's nothing to protect against, it becomes obsolete. So the way that we're showing up and engaging starts to create those conditions for the kind of conversation and relationship we want to have. So Oren, I'm in this world myself. I, I relate to it and I appreciate it. And still, there's a question that's coming up for me about this that I think is very timely in our culture politically yeah. in different kinds of ways, which has to do with what do we do when... We're in a relationship with person X who is truly mistreating person Y. Mm -hmm. Now, occasionally person Y is us, but let's suppose a lot it's another kind of person. So uh -huh. let's say you're in a work environment in which it's really pretty clear right. that let's say the male leaders in that company wittingly and unwittingly are making it hard for the women in the company. 
in various ways. Or let's suppose that you had a child with someone, you got a divorce, the child is now 10 or 15, and uh, your co-parent, your ex, is really doing things that are hurtful to the child, in your Mm -hmm. view, or not doing things that would be really helpful to the child, like showing up for the kids' baseball games or whatnot. So how do we, at some point in the wonderful frame that you're talking about here, in effect, make demands on other people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If I could add an example that's uh, a little timely right now in the, the run-up uh, slowly but surely to America's 2020 presidential elections, what do you do if you're a woman and some man, wittingly or unwittingly, you know, puts his hands on you and Maybe he thinks there's nothing wrong with that, but you basically want to tell him, get your hands off me. You don't really start by saying, you know, when you put your hands on me and nuzzle the back of my hair, I feel kind of X, Y, and Z because, you know, I need my boundaries respected. Right. It's more like, get your hands off me, bud. Right. So, okay, take it from here, please. Sure. Yeah, I I appreciate all the questions, Rick, and and in particular, just speaking to the realities of the different kinds of social power we have and the different places we occupy in society. And this is, this is particularly why, in terms of where we started, it's not about the form. It's not about sit following some structure, right, and formula and saying A, B, C, D. It's about being clear in ourselves what's important to me and what's needed in the moment, what's going to be most skillful or helpful, right? And so when physical harm is involved or physical safety is at stake, we do anything in our power to protect, whether it's ourselves or another person, right? If a child is running out into the street, you don't engage in dialogue, you grab them. You know, so right. if putting their hands on a female in, in ways that are not that not welcome, I would I would want that female identified person to be really clear and strong in saying, you know, take your hands off me. That's not okay. Just very, very directly. Now, from a, from a mindfulness perspective and a contemplative practice perspective, the, the question is, is there hatred in the heart while doing that rather than just that clarity of care and compassion for oneself in drawing a boundary and, and, and setting a limit? As far as making demands, this is, this is an interesting area because... That language is a language that's often used in social change movements and work for political organizing where, you know, the, those who are disenfranchised or have been historically marginalized are making demands. The reality of the world we live in is that we can't actually make anyone do anything. We can contain behavior, right? That's why we put people in prison. We can make people regret actions that they have taken, hence retributive justice and punishment, but we can't actually force anyone to do anything. What we can do is we can raise the stakes. And so my understanding of at least nonviolent social action, work for nonviolent social change, is that the aim, the mechanism of of nonviolent direct action is to put pressure on the, uh, the people or the institutions with power and authority to get them to the negotiating table. 
to open the space for dialogue. So to take it to, you know, a workplace environment where, say, a male boss or leader is not treating, not treating women either fairly or with respect or there's pay inequity. I think that making, making demands, there's a difference between making demands and creating a situation where there's pressure, where there are stakes, right? Where people on the staff are basically banding together and saying, this, this doesn't work for us. And we want to engage in a discussion about how to do this differently. When you place demands on anyone, you leave them two options. One is to submit and the other is to rebel. And neither of those are actually effective in building relationship or transforming systems. So the trajectory from the perspective of these tools would be to create the conditions where there can be a dialogue and an exploration of how to actually address the situation in a way that's going to be more sustainable. That's great. That's deep. So to say this back to you in a way that kind of moves us into practice for somebody who might be engaging these issues, again, to use one which uh, Rick named earlier, the idea that you're maybe cohabitating with somebody or they're a uh, former relationship that you have a shared child with, something like that, and you're invested in the success of that, uh, that vulnerable individual in this example, a, a younger child. Mm-hmm. And you don't believe that necessarily the action that that person is taking is to in the child's best interest. Mm-hmm. To kind of say back to you what you are sort of suggesting for that example, and correct me please if I'm wrong here, Yeah, is that an approach of going to that person with what you're doing is wrong right now. This is not in you know little Timmy's best interests. And I think that we should do X instead is going to, or, you know, and if we don't do X, then I'm going to involve a lawyer or something like that. I'm going to mm-hmm. really raise the stakes. I'm going to make it extremely mm-hmm. challenging for you if you don't do what I want. Mm-hmm. That that moves us into confrontation with that person. And yeah. the alternative is to create a more open environment of expressing your individual wants and needs and viewpoint. Is that more or less what you're suggesting? Not necessarily. I think it's mm-hmm. more... I think it's somewhere in between because, again, when safety is involved, we might need to raise the stakes. We, yeah. might, we might need to say, like, listen, you know, every time Timmy comes home, he hasn't eaten or slept, mm. you know, right? I, yeah. I, need to, I need to get CPS involved here mm-hmm. or something like that. So I think that, let me paint two different examples. Yeah, please. So what I'm, what I'm counseling against would be, for example, that parent saying to their co-parent, you have to do this. Mm. You must do this, right? What's going to happen when we say to somebody, particularly an ex, who we already have a, a tense relationship with, placing demands on them, right? We're liable to get a, a rather inflamed response. It's mm. unlikely that the person's going to say, oh, you're right. Thank you for telling me. <laughs> I'm happy to do that, right? Yeah, absolutely. So that, that when we place demands on someone, even if they do it, even if they agree they're not going to be doing it willingly or joyfully. They're going, mm-hmm. to be do it, they're going to do it begrudgingly. It's going to eat away at the relationship. And over time, it's likely going to fall back to the old pattern because there wasn't a sense of intrinsic motivation or understanding for the reasons behind it. So what I'm advocating for is actually something closer to what you said initially, which mm-hmm. is that we're coming from a good intention and a clear understanding of the values or needs we're trying to meet, right? Which is, listen... 
it's really, I, I noticed that Timmy, every time when he has a baseball game and you don't come, he's so distraught. He's mm. sad for days. He misses you. He really needs you in his life. I want to understand what's getting in the way of you coming to his baseball games. Mm-hmm. Is there anything I can do to help make that happen? Are you wanting to or willing to come to his baseball games? And if not, can we talk about that? So framing it in terms of here's the value that I have, but then also recognizing there's another human being here. Why aren't you coming? I want to understand. Can you explain? Right. And then if we're talking about things that are, that are more where physical safety are involved, like the example of not getting fed or not getting enough sleep and so forth, that's maybe where we say, like, I'm concerned for my child's safety unless you're able to agree that you will take care of A, B, and C when he's in your care. I don't feel comfortable or safe having you look after him. I don't want to get lawyers or police involved, but I'll do what I need to to take care of our son. Warren, two things strike me here. One is that you're willing in your modeling here, in your role playing. First, you're willing to get heated yourself. Absolutely. Which I think is great. You're willing to be, you're, you're implying that it's okay to be authentic. This is not the Stepford therapist, wife, husband, human talking. It's not a robot talking. Right. It's real. Yeah. And that's very important. And the second thing that you're dropping in is that it's okay to describe consequences. Yeah. Other people can go, oh, don't threaten me. Well, it's not a threat. It's just a fact that exactly. I can't make you do something. I'm requesting it. On the other hand, I'm informing you. That if, for example, you know, Timmy comes home yet again with, without having had dinner, I'm going to take action to prevent that happening in the future. Right. And being able to frame it in terms of saying like, I so want for another way to handle this, Mm. right. Mm -hmm. To be able, I'd like to work together. I don't want to go to that point. And if we can't figure this out because of this value, because of this need that I have, I don't see any other way possible. I have this kind of conversation with, I work with educators and school teachers a lot around communication. And, you know, school is, in particular, is an institution and a system that's very hierarchical, where you have the adults have the power over the children. And for teachers who are trying to work in a more collaborative way with their children, Mm -hmm. they often come to me and say, well, how do I deal with it when I've tried having the conversation. I've tried separating the kid. You know, I've done all of the creative behavior interventions and they're still acting out in a way that's disrupting the learning environment for other children. Mm-hmm. I say to the teachers, I say, then you, you explain to the child what you're doing and why and that the reason you're doing it is because you're out of options. It's a mm-hmm. lack of creativity rather than punishment. And being able to say, you know, I want you to be included in the classroom And it's part of my job to make sure that everyone else here is able to learn. And I'm not seeing any other way to do that right now, but then asking you to leave and go to the principal's office. If you have any other ideas, I'm open to them. Otherwise, would you please leave and go go to the office? And when you're ready, you can come back. And the the other thing you said, Rick, you know, which I really am glad you, you pointed out, is that these tools are not about being nice or speaking calmly all the time. They're about being authentic. And sometimes mm-hmm. that means being, you know, really heated and, and intense. But we can be really powerful in our speech without that punitive intent, without ill will. It's about the passion that we have for our own values or for those that we care for. And particular, if we're looking at areas of 
social change or organizing where we are looking to protect or be an ally or support those who have less power or whose voice aren't heard or to protect animals or ecosystems that are being threatened, we can speak very vehemently from a place of love rather than from a place of hatred. Warren, another thing here, implicit in what you've said so far is, in effect, the effort to maintain and work within a collaborative frame with another person. Yeah. And I have worked with a lot of divorced families, and and I've also been in other situations where it was really clear, and let's just sort of stipulate it for the conversation, that the other party was completely uninterested in anything that resembled collaboration. And in fact, didn't really want to do that because for them, it felt like being controlled by somebody. Mm-hmm. And or the other person really clearly was not operating in good faith. Mm-hmm. Even if they pretended to be collaborative and cooperative and reasonable, actually, they were not acting in good faith. So in those situations, I guess I'm thinking of a kind of saying that came to me a long time ago, which is to communicate for yourself, that sometimes we're in situations where to try to, even in a very subtle and gentle and jujitsu kind of nonviolent communication way, influence the other person, we really just abandon that. We don't even think we're going to have any influence over them, but we're going to speak for the record and we're going to speak Mm -hmm. for ourselves to know that we've said it, or we're going to speak so that those around us will know that we've said it. But we're beyond uh, trying to elicit any kind of reasonable or cooperative behavior from the other person because that would be diluted. You know, yeah. the first five times we tried, that would make sense. But by then, you know, it's really clear. It's, it's like in the movie, The Terminator, you know, the Terminator's just going to keep coming right. at you. And it's not about you in a fundamental way. Okay. Help us here. What would you say to all that? Yeah, thanks. I, I, it's one of the things I really, I really admire and respect about you and your work, Rick, which is how grounded you are in the nitty gritty and the reality of our lives. Mm-hmm. So I just want to just want to celebrate that and honor it and, and continuing to Thank bring you. forward these questions. Yeah. There are two things that come to mind. One is just to is just to join you in what you're saying and maybe just put a different frame on it, which is we could say that there are two kinds of communication. One is communication that's aimed at understanding and connection with one another. Then there's communication that's just about integrity where the aim is no longer to actually have the other person hear my message because I have lost the confidence that they actually have the capacity or willingness to do that. Mm-hmm. It's more about my own integrity and bearing witness to the moment. And this is something that's very true or can be very true sometimes in, in areas of oppression where there's sexism or racism or homophobia or transphobia happening where The person from the marginalized community is in speaking up, there's a choice there where it's like, am I choosing to try to reach the person on the other side and educate them in some way? Mm. Or am I more just setting a limit? And I'm not particularly interested in whether or not the other person understands me. I'm more just standing up for myself or my community and drawing a line out of integrity. So this, this is one way that I'm hearing what you're saying. And uh, to go back to what I was talking about earlier, for me, that's also about, you know, being able to look oneself in the mirror or being able to sleep well at night that, you know, we're in line with our own integrity. The other facet here, the other aspect, and, and I, I'm actually glad that you brought up the, the Terminator analogy, because for me, 
in my own heart of hearts, I never want to write anyone off. And I, I want to hold the possibility that part of what makes us human is that we can change. Mm-hmm. And we don't know when or how the, the conditions for that change will come about. But if I speak from a place of love and authenticity in the moment, not so much with the understanding that you're going to change, but just because this is my truth and I need to say it. And I say it with as much the, the deepest truth that I know, but also with as much love and care in my heart as I can. I want to have faith that somewhere in the other person's consciousness, they're hearing that. And if, it, if there's truth to it, at some point, their heart will be ready to hear that. And I may never see that. I may never know about that. But I want, I want to hold that possibility out for all people. I think that's a great point, Oren. And I'm glad that we're doing this because I think that we're raising and then speaking to a lot of the very natural questions that people have about this material and particularly about that intersection between nonviolent communication while still bringing intensity and strength and directness to the table and how those two things can really coexist with each other uh, quite wonderfully, in fact. So, Oren, as we wander toward the end of our time here together, I would actually like to ask you a final question, particularly from the perspective of somebody who's clearly done a lot of thinking about these sorts of things over the course of their life to this point. If you could go back in time and tell yourself something as a child or as a young adult, what would it be? Hmm. Hmm. What a touching question. It's really moving. I've never really, never really considered that in quite that way. Mm. Well, what's coming is, uh, is quite simple, actually. It's just two things. I love you. Mm. You're going to be okay. Yeah. And it's just that, just that sense of, because, you know, for me as a child in particular, I felt very alone. I felt very, I had a, I have a brother and, you know, two loving parents. And yet there was a way in which I felt very alone growing up. Like I wasn't seen or really seen fully. It's an experience I think a lot of kids have. And so just that sense of being seen. And then there are very many different points in my life, particularly in my, in my teens and in my 20s, where there was a lot of angst about where am I going and what am I doing with my life mm-hmm. and what's my place, a kind of very natural place in terms of our psychological development as human beings. And so both the sense of I love you and then it's going to be okay, you know, that we're, we're, we're on a journey and that I, could, uh, I can trust trust that. Great, Orin. I mean, thank you so much. That's such a that's such a sweet note for us to end on here. So again, thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. Absolutely. Thank you, Forrest. Thanks, Rick. It's great to be here. So today we had the pleasure of speaking with Orin J. Sofer, author of Say What You Mean, A Mindful Approach to Nonviolent Communication. If you'd like to learn more about Orin's book, I'll be including a link to it in the description of today's episode. We began by talking about nonviolent communication, and Oren really started us off by clarifying that nonviolent communication wasn't just about applying a certain formula to our interactions. It instead was a much deeper kind of sensing into what our real goals and desires were 
from any given conversation, and particularly from approaching them with a kind of openness and sensitivity to both our needs and the needs of other people. When we operate from that stance, it is much easier to create productive results from our conversations and to avoid many of the hangups that come from making people feel dictated to and forced to take a certain kind of action. We spent some time discussing why it's important to operate from a stance of nonviolence in our communication, even if our conversational partners don't, both because by doing so, we open the space for their cooperation, but also, and really more importantly, we know inside ourselves on a deep level that we have retained our allegiance to the things that matter to us. We then spent some time toward the end talking about how nonviolent communication isn't about a sort of step-fertization of our communication structures with other people. It's not about being robotic. It's not about removing our emotionality from the equation. You can communicate nonviolently while still being firm, fiery, and direct with somebody else about the potential consequences of their actions. This is particularly important in situations where there's a real power imbalance between the parties, such as a parent with a child, or a boss with an employee. Orn's compassionate and mindful approach was really apparent throughout our conversation. So that's it for today's episode. If you've been enjoying the podcast, we would really appreciate it if you would leave a comment, a rating, a review of the podcast on the platform of your choice, and also subscribe to it. It's probably the best way to support the podcast. So that's it for being well. Until next time, thanks for listening.